This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hello, I'm Lale Arakoglu, and this is Women Who Travel, a podcast for anyone who's curious about the world, both far afield and in their own backyard. Travel is inherently absurd. It's amusing, chaotic, messy. Sometimes it can be embarrassing. And it's often, at the best of times, deeply nuanced. Sometimes we go to places with built-in prejudices that we don't always confront. And the aim of travel is to upturn those. My guest today tackles that head-on with humour that can be self-deprecating and often disconcerting. She's Chelsea Handler, the comedian and television host and best-selling author. She's written memoirs like Life Will Be the Death of Me and You Too, hosted various documentary series and just wrapped up her Vaccinated and Horny tour, concluding with her December 2022 comedy special Revolution on Netflix. I mean, America's such a young country and we don't think about that until we're a lot older, usually, typically. Unsurprisingly, Chelsea's job has taken her all around the globe. My last talk show, which was on Netflix, we got to see, they let us just do whatever. We went to Russia, we filmed in Moscow, we went to India, we filmed, you know, in New Delhi and Mumbai, and we were there for like two weeks. We got to go to Colombia and Cartagena, and we just went all over the world. And going to every single place is like, it's just, wow. Like, you know, they're so different than America. When we spoke, I was in the Arizona desert while Chelsea was at her house in Whistler, British Columbia's winter paradise. I think it's about negative 24 Celsius today. So that translates to cold in Fahrenheit. And my niece just got here yesterday. So I'm taking her out skiing and she is going to freeze her tushy off is basically what's about to happen. So we're going to have to really (laughs) bundle up. I was just in Montreal and it was like minus 28 Celsius. And it was a cold I'd never known before. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. It's very much feels like that sort of cold where you go outside and you're like, 
oh, if I'm not prepared for this, it will kill me. And you love skiing, right? You have a place in Whistler. This is it's very close to your heart. Yes, I do love skiing. But as my girlfriend said last night, you're a really good skier unless there's too much snow because you can't ski too much snow, which is basically what every skier loves is powder. And I only like a certain amount of powder because when it's too deep, I just don't know what I'm doing. It's a totally different skill set and I don't have it. So even though I ski a lot, I wouldn't qualify myself as the best skier. A competent skier. We'll yeah, say. yes, that's one. That's one way to put it, competent. <laughs> Mixing politics, advocacy and pop culture references is what makes Chelsea Handler, Chelsea Handler. And so she was a natural fit recently when she was asked to guest host The Tonight Show after Trevor Noah's departure. It's no secret that there's an absence of women in late night TV. That show also came after an intense road trip of live gigs with her vaccinated and horny post-pandemic tour across North America and Canada. You visited like 90 markets, you played 115 shows. What's it been like to decompress from oh god, all of that travel and all of those performances? Well, you know, at the end of the tour, I was able to film my special Revolution, which just debuted on Netflix like a month ago or two months ago. It's like having a baby, except this baby takes 150 shows or however many, 115. You lose track after a while, but it's the traveling that is just the most kind of you know, the tediousness. It's so much fun to get up on stage in front of a huge crowd. It's just the fact of going from city to city, you know, and your sleep and your driving and your weather. It doesn't matter if you fly privately or if you have a tour bus or if you've, it all sucks. Like there's no way around it. So it does take a minute to decompress from that, you know, and while you're doing it, you know, you're just kind of resting and conserving your energy or preserving your energy all day. So I could use another six months off, but I'm not going to get it because I'm going back on tour now. 25 cities in the U.S. for a new tour called Little Big Bitch Tour, because that's the kind of thing you do a special and then you want to capitalize on that special, you know, people watching it and seeing it and tickets moving. So I'm going to go back on tour in April. You went to so many U.S. cities. You've got a ton more coming up. Do you feel like you get to know America better? Well, I have my audience, you know what I mean? So those are the people that are showing up that are like-minded and, you know, liberal and a lot of women and a lot of gay people and everything in between, you know? So wherever you go, they will come and you find out that there are a lot of those great liberal pockets in all parts of the country, even places like Oklahoma and Tennessee and I filmed my last special at the Ryman in Nashville. So like you go to different parts of the country, but it's always your people that show up. So you're not really getting to, you know, other than the fact that in certain states you can see people, you know, openly carrying guns. I mean, that's pretty jarring. Even though I am American and I live with that, it is pretty crazy to see, you know. Is there anywhere that you actually just like genuinely look forward to going back to? Or is there somewhere on this recent tour that you kind of like, just managed to have a really great time in outside of the show? Yeah, San Francisco. My sister lives there, so I always love San Francisco. I always love Chicago. The Chicago Theater is awesome, and that's always would have been one of my favorite cities to perform in. You know, where we performed that was just such a fun surprise and treat was Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> and I had never been to Alabama before. It ended up being just the coolest place. We had this fun gay waiter before we went to this restaurant before because that was a city we came in and out of. So all we did was eat, go to the venue, perform, and then fly out. 
Yeah, that was a great city, and that was a surprise. Nashville is awesome to perform in. Uh, what other cities do I love? Uh, some, you know, like Portland, Seattle, those big cities are great too, because that's kind of my area, my neck of the woods. And mm -hmm. uh, I have a lot of friends in that area. And then, of course, my Canadian cities I love. I haven't done a tour overseas in a while, so I'm sure that's coming up soon at some point. A few years ago, Chelsea released a series where she explored neighborhoods in LA. Neighborhoods like K-Town, that she'd never visited even though she grew up in that city. For her, it was like peeling away the onion of Los Angeles. Yeah, it was interesting how self-segregated Los Angeles is. You think it's a city that it's diverse and mixed, and it's like, when you really break it down, you know, I mean, it's like any city. There's Chinatown, there's Koreatown. There's a section, you know, like for the affluent, and then there's a section for the middle class. So it's just very much the Vietnamese live in one area. Everyone kind of self-segregates. And so it was kind of an unpeeling of that, yeah, how society works and how when you think you know, I, I remember hearing this quote about race saying, like, people in the South are racist, but they can live next door to people of color and act neighborly, whereas people in the North, in the big cities, are on paper not racist, but we all self-segregate in these big cities, New York, L.A., you know, San Francisco. So it was interesting to kind of learn about that and understand, you know, how deep-seated it all is and how everybody's scared of the other, you know, even when you practice it or you don't think it. It's so ingrained in our society that you can't really ever get away from it. So it's important to be aware of it and, you know, contemplate it and see, like, you know, how do you play a part in that and how can you, you know, dismantle things on your end of the situation. From what I gather, travel has always been a very big part of your life. And is it true that you bought your own first class plane ticket when you were 10? Yes, it was 13 when I bought it. I was 10 when I first flew. And then I realized that I walked onto the plane with my mom and my brothers and saw the first class section. And I had never been on a plane before. And I was like, well, who are these people? Like, this is where it's at. You know, this looks right up my alley. My mom's like, never mind that. That's first class. We have six kids in our family. We'll never be able to afford that. And I just thought, speak for yourself, bitch, because that's not what my plan is. And so we came home from that trip and I was like, okay, really like brainstorming, like this can't happen again. And I started my own babysitting company. I was 10, but I looked older always. So I lied and said I was 13. Uh, yeah. No, I said I was 15 and I ended up babysitting a kid that was 14 years old. So I was babysitting a kid that was four years older than me because I lied and said I was 15. And he ended up being like, you know, my best client that summer. I ended up saving $3,500. And then the next time we flew, when I was 13, I got a first class ticket from this woman who lived down the street who was a travel agent. And we, I didn't tell anyone. And when we got on the plane, I was with my two brothers this time and my mom. And we passed 2A and I was like, see you guys at the end of the flight. And I sat down, put my stuff down, put my stuff in the overhead bin. And my brother's like, shut up, what are you doing? I'm like, I said, I'd see you at the end of the flight, asshole. And then he's like, you have to give this ticket to mom if you really bought a first class ticket. I'm like, no, I don't. She doesn't want to fly first class. I'm like, these are my people. And I haven't flown coach since. 
That is so amazing. And but also what I really love that story is that it feels so good the first time you earn money and you spend it on something for yourself. And it's like a very empowering thing to get a taste of, which usually happens when you're a teenager. And that must have really shaped how you wanted to spend your earnings. And like, I mean, like you said, once you've done first class, you can't go back. Yeah. Well, I think I was just very materialistic. Well, I know I was growing up because I grew up in this very kind of like upper middle class, you know, neighborhood with a lot of Jewish people. And they had a lot of fancy cars and everybody had Cavaricci jeans and guest jeans and the Cabbage Patch Kid before anyone else got it. Like it was a very kind of, and my family was not keeping up with the Joneses. So in comparison, my father was a used car dealer. He had the cars strewn throughout our driveway and half of them started and half of them didn't. So in comparison to my friends and my neighbors, I was always like, mm, look, you know, looking at what I wasn't getting. After the break, Chelsea tells me about how choosing to be childless offers a freedom to explore the world and talks about a few places she wants to see next. If you're enjoying today's episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I promise we really do read every single one. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. You hosted an episode of The Daily Show a couple of weeks ago, and your segment, A Day in the Life of a Childless Woman, really made me laugh. And I know it also sent a certain sector of right-wing men into an absolute <laughs> fury. But I loved it. I thought it was such a hilarious play on those kind of day-in-the-life influences and the way that you eat an edible and then you eat a croissant in Paris and then you meditate on a plane and then you kill Hitler all because your time is your own. How have you been kind of like basking in the response of that? Just laughing at it. I mean, it's so stupid, you know? Like, it's just <laughs> ridiculous. These white guys telling us if we're happy or not. I mean, arguing with me about my own happiness, <laughs> arguing, saying you're not happy. You're not. You can't be. Like, it's so absurd. You know, I'm in Whistler and my friends in Canada are like, who the fuck are these people? I can't believe that like a news program is reporting about how out of line you making a satirical video about not having children is they're upset 
about my happiness and me joking around, like talk about, first of all, no sense of humor. Our right wing obviously is devoid of that. But it's important to know when you don't have the skills to raise a baby, you know? Instead of shaming people, we should say, oh, good. Good for you for knowing that you shouldn't have a baby. We should get a carbon credit for not polluting to mass population. I know I don't have the skills to raise a baby. I have rescued nine dogs in my life. Thank you. I've returned four. <laughs> because I have a type. And I'm impulsive, and I don't think things through. And like any other animal lover here tonight, when you have a type, you stick to that type. And my type is slow <laughs> and overweight. That is what I'm looking for in an animal. <laughs> but you know kind of on a more serious note I'm you know a woman in her 30s and I kind of live and work to travel and the freedom to do so is so important and that's not to say that having children stops that you know people find all sorts of ways to continue to do that and make it work for them but these conversations do really speak to me and feel very top of mind at the moment and I'm interested to know you know you kind of joke about it a lot but like what has the kind of freedom of not having children kind of afforded you, especially in terms of travel? Well, obviously it affords me all the freedom in the world. I get to do what I want when I want because I'm not tethered to anything, you know, and I do get up and go, let's go somewhere crazy. I do do impulsive things like that. That's my personality. So I just knew at a very young age, I mean, that I was too selfish to have kids and and it's selfish in the way that like, I wouldn't be great at it. There's so many other things that I can focus on that I know I am good at, you know? I'm a great aunt, I crush that role. I'm in touch with all of my nieces and nephews on a regular basis, I love them dearly. I provide fun, entertainment, travel for them. I get to focus on so many kids instead of just my own. And also all the other children in the world that I've been able to help, like, you know, with charitable donations or, you know, investing in youth groups and providing school supplies. like. All of these things I have much more of a focus on because I don't have the responsibility of my own children. You've used your comedy to examine your own privilege and you made your 2019 docuseries, Hello Privilege, It's Me, Chelsea. Thank you for having me here tonight. My name's Chelsea Handler. And I am as white as they come. I'm filming a documentary, as you may or may not know, about white privilege. Oh. I'm clearly the beneficiary of white privilege. I want to know how to be a better white person to people of color. We need to talk to people who are white and stop asking black people to solve our problems. Do you think it exists? I wouldn't say it's totally non-existent, but it's not something that I see very commonly. But would you see it if you're white? I got caught with dime bags on me with my boyfriend Tyshawn three times, and every time he was arrested and I was let go. It never occurred to me that it was a racial thing. I should have known better. The obstacles are so hard for a black person than it is for a white person. You guys know where you come from. You know your history. We don't know that. 
still don't know if we were related to kings or queens or if we were farmers or if we built houses. We don't know. You guys know. That's the privilege you guys have. How do you think travel has kind of played into that journey and that kind of examination of the privilege that you grew up with and kind of shaped you as it does for all of us? You know, I think just seeing different parts of the world and seeing what people are, how people live and the customs and cultures that are so varied from America. I'm very curious about people, you know, and the way that they live and just like the customs and, you know, like in Japan, we were in Japan for a while and you realize how respected the elderly are in Japan, you know, and how disrespected Americans are to their elderly comparatively. And it's like, whoa, like there's hardly any crime in Tokyo. And it's like, oh, but then there's a high rate of suicide because the expectations are so high. So academically and, you know, career-wise and all of that. So that was interesting. Obviously, India is, you know, first of all, the irony of going to India, I had the best Chinese food I've ever had in my life in India. All we ate was Chinese food, night after night after night. There was one Chinese restaurant after another. And I was like, what is the deal? After the break, the joy of finding rewarding travel companions and figuring out the best ways to spend time together. And we also hear a few unwelcome thoughts about snakes. Life doesn't come with an instruction manual, but the Life Kit podcast gets you pretty close. Whether we're helping you tackle life-altering questions or just your everyday pickles, we've got deeply human solutions to your deeply human problems. Listen now to the Life Kit podcast from NPR. I don't go anywhere alone. I'm not responsible enough to keep track of things. Like I need somebody there who plans. I think my best travel buddy is probably my friend, Sophie. She and I have traveled a lot together and that works well together because she loves logistics. That is her area of expertise. And so she has a big job wherever she is and that job requires her because she's in sport. So it requires her to bounce around the world. So I, whenever I have downtime, I just tag along with her. And so we've been to Portugal together. We've been to Sweden together. We're going to Norway this summer. And she's a really good travel buddy. She introduced me to Biarritz, France, which is also one of the best places I've ever been. It's like a surfing village from the 70s, Biarritz. And like they have this cute esplanade and this shoreline that's like for surfers. And then there's an inlet for people who just want to swim. And then there's another big surf break. And the food is delicious. The people are beautiful. It's Basque. You know, men are tall. Everything works there. It sounds perfect. You know, you found your perfect travel buddy. What do you think are there qualities you look for in a travel buddy? Because I feel like sometimes if you're with the wrong person, really go awry. No, I just don't like anyone who's nervous. You know what I mean? I don't like nerves or somebody who's very anxious. I don't have a lot of time for that. On a vacation, in real life, I can have a lot more patience for that. But on vacation, I want somebody who's ready to go, adventurous, wants to get after it, you know, whether it's sightseeing or exercising or going, you know, or drinking, day drinking.
Chelsea's been chatting to me from her place in Whistler. But she also spends a lot of time travelling to Mallorca, Spain. It's another special place for her to escape to. I go to Mallorca each year for about a month. So I have a bunch of girlfriends that come through. Every week is like a different group of friends. So one week I have a party week. The next week it's an exercise group. The next week it's someone else and so on and so forth. So yeah, we have some pretty good memories there. It's a great spot. It's like, you know, at a certain age, lying on the beach and drinking is no longer interesting. You want to like have some action. I'd rather be exercising and then drink, you know, at a restaurant. So we do a lot of biking there. We do a lot of hiking, a lot of scuba diving. I'm not really a big on hiking unless I'm in a place where the views are spectacular, you know. We've touched on Whistler. We touched on Mallorca. What have been some meaningful travel experiences for you that you kind of return to again and again? Africa. My first time in Africa was pretty meaningful because that was the first time I had been somewhere where I felt like I was on another planet. You know, like I felt like I was on the set of Jurassic Park, watching the animals walk around in front of you. Like we were on this lanai at this camp, Londolozi, Londolozi, I think is the way you say it, but who knows? I mean, I could just pretend I have an American accent since I do. And Botswana, we went to, this year we're going to Kenya and Tanzania. So it was just watching those animals like in front of us walk through like, and just like the elephant and then the giraffe. And you're like, oh my God, you just can't believe it's real. I've been back since, and I'm going this time taking my three nieces and my sister, and then another friend is coming with her two daughters. So it's going to be another one of those great adventures. I wrote a book about my last trip to Africa because it was so much fun. We went with six girls and we just kind of treated it like it was a bachelorette party. <laughs> I mean, Africa had never seen anything like it. They were like, we've never seen women drink like this. We're like, well, get some more alcohol. They're like, we've called to get ahead to the next camp because they're not going to have enough alcohol. We thought you were just supposed to drink from the morning drive to the night drive. It was ridiculous. We were completely out of control. But it was This fun. was in Botswana? Yeah, Botswana was beautiful. We were on the Delta. And I mean, at night, you'd look out your room that is a tent, but it's basically like a five-star resort. I mean, it's so luxurious. And you look out and you just see the hippo crossing like through the Delta and these little white eyes popping out. And you're just like, holy cow, we saw live kills. We saw this elephant, this mama elephant stampede through our camp to stop a fight between the lions and the impala. And we met this guy, Rex Miller, who's this, who runs safaris in Africa. He's planning our safari next, who will be a lifelong friend. And, you know, they talk about seeing the world and going into the villages and seeing the things that these people make and that sewing and the, you know, the craftsmanship of everything, the clothing and the bright colors and their culture and the dancing at night. You know, you sit around a fire and they're just kind of performing this dance that you've, you know, you've never, you've, if you haven't been to Africa, you've never seen anything like it. And inviting you to come and dance with them, of course, which I would never do because I have no rhythm. And even in Africa, I couldn't find my rhythm, so it's gone. I blame it on being a Jew. Yeah, so that was pretty much one of the most meaningful trips ever. Another one, which is a frilly trip, was Bora Bora, because I went with my girlfriend. We went to a surf competition. I don't know how to say it. Chwapo? Chwapo. I always say it. Chopu. Chopu in Tahiti by Papiete 
And then after that, she was running the World Surf League, my friend. So we went to that, but the waves weren't coming. And I was like, listen, we were staying at this little hut on the beach. And I was like, when are we going to get to Bora Bora? Like, let's get down to business. So we went, we flew to Bora Bora. They picked us up at the airport in a gondola. And from that moment on, everything was spectacular. I have never been so happy. I, I felt like I was on my honeymoon with my girlfriend, which is even better than probably being on a real honeymoon. I have never been to Bora Bora, definitely on my list, but I did get to go to Kenya and Tanzania last year. Oh, really? I had never been on safari before and it was, I mean, it's like I'd obviously heard so many people talk about what a spectacular experience it is and it's going to like, you know, it's sort of like very like life affirming and I was like, yeah, 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 sure, great. And then I like experienced it and a friend put it really well where she was like, it almost feels like you're in like the earth's heartbeat the way that you just are like right in the middle of all these animals. And oh God, it was just extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty spectacular. Where in Kenya and Tanzania are you going? Mm, I don't know any specifics about it yet. Okay. Well, I will be following along for sure. And now that all important issue of snakes. I am disgusted by snakes. I just can't stand it. And when I see one, I go into shock. I read an article that said snakes are going to move up from Florida where there are so many of them because they have, they lay like a hundred eggs at a time and they're moving up to the Northeast because of, you know, weather change. So they can have comfort, you know, in the North now too, because of the warming temperatures. So, I mean, I'm going to have to go to Nova Scotia or something. Percy, this is very revealed. You've gone pretty deep. Well, I'm in, scared in of snakes and I want algorithm. them to be murdered. I don't care what they're bringing to the environment. Like, it's not worth it. And also, we don't need this many, <laughs> you know, because people take them as pets and, and they keep them as pets in Florida, a lot of people and elsewhere. I actually, I know somebody who has a snake at her house and I won't call her out because she's my close friend, but you know who you are. I went to... Tennessee to go to Dollywood for a friend's bachelorette and we had a run-in with a snake at our Airbnb and it, it like I think we're all still kind of traumatized by it where was um, it was it inside the house it was outside the house and it was we were opening the gate to drive out of the driveway and as my friend was opening the gate she encountered this huge snake and we <laughs> She screamed, she jumped in the car. And then as we drove away, the car behind us just didn't stop driving and just went right over that snake. That snake met a sorry end at my friend's bachelorette. Ew. Do you know what kind of snake it was? It was very large and black. Ew. Oh, God. And then there was this moral dilemma because we then realized we were like, oh, my God, we've run over the snake. So we got out of the car. And it was still kind of half alive. And there was a big debate as to whether to take it out of its misery or not. Gross. And I this was is, like, no. This is so gross. It was, yeah, I, I think about it quite often. I, and then we went to Dollywood and we all ate, took edibles and had a fantastic time. But uh, Well, that's nice. I once had a snake in my driveway and Reese Witherspoon was coming over to my house. And I had pulled up to my driveway and saw that there was a snake Oh, no, no. My girlfriend was leaving and Reese was coming. And my girlfriend who left called me and said, there's a little rattlesnake in your driveway. And I was like, what? And I, I immediately jumped on top of my kitchen counter, standing there. Reese comes in and she's like, oh, that, that, that's 
nothing. You know, that's a little snake. And I was like, <laughs> fuck off. She's like, what are you doing on your island? I'm like, I can't, I can't, somebody has to kill it or come in and retrieve it. My friend ran it over and it wasn't dead either. Oh, it was so oh, disgusting. God, this is, this is a but Reese story. had no reaction. She's like, oh yeah, no problem. I'm like, whatever. Well, I love that because that really kind of affirms the idea of who I think Reese is in my head. Yeah. And that's exactly how I would like her to have responded. It really was an absolute treat to have Chelsea on the show. And thank you to Netflix for letting us play those clips. I can't wait to see more of her on her next tour. Next week, we meet Emily Pennington, a.k.a. Brazen Backpacker, who has hiked all of America's 63 national parks. Thank you for listening. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me, as always, on Instagram at Lale Hanna. And follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Leighton Brown is our composer. Jennifer Nelson is our engineer. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. It's sort of in, kind of embarrassing to admit right now that I can't drive, but you know, oh, we'll skim fuck. over that. This detail. is not the podcast <laughs> for those kinds of admissions. <laughs> Hey, it's Chris Clemick here. If you like this show, you might enjoy There's More to That. It's a new podcast from Smithsonian Magazine and PRX where I'll be talking to journalists around the globe, taking inspiration from the Smithsonian Institution's museums and research centers and using insightful reporting to explore the mysteries of the wider world. Plus, every episode comes with at least one conveniently packaged fact for you to share at your next dinner party. So check us out. Subscribe to There's More to That from Smithsonian Magazine and PRX and find out how much more there is to almost everything.